be in Joshua chapter 22. Uh, next week, Lord willing, I'll be preaching about Joshua the man. And then the following week after that, we'll uh, look at Jesus in the book of Joshua. And then uh, we'll be ready to move on to the next series. So uh, keep that in prayer, uh, if you will. I'm not sh exactly sure where we're going to go yet. So I'd like to uh, pray first. And uh, my prayer is going to come from uh, Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 1 through 4. Uh, this is uh, Moses' song. And I'll, I'd like to pray Moses' song. So this is God's word. Moses says, Listen, you heavens, and I will speak. Hear, you earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Amen. So we'll find in chapter 22 of Joshua a very interesting uh, situation, a situation which uh, brings the tribes to the brink of civil war. The beginning of chapter 2 uh, starts off on a, a positive note. Uh, Joshua is bidding a happy farewell to the two and a half tribes of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribes, the half-tribe of Manasseh, which, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to refer to as the 2.5 tribes from now on. <laughs> so at this point, uh, roughly seven years have passed since the crossing of the River Jordan. And uh, if it seems to you that I've been preaching through Joshua for seven years, um, I just want to assure you it's only been seven months and it's been about 20 messages and uh, we've had a lot of um, side trips in between there. But uh, remember back in chapter one, as the people were preparing to cross the River Jordan uh, for the first time, that Joshua reminded these uh, 2.5 tribes of their promise. They promised to help conquer the land after Moses had already allotted to them the land east of the, the Jordan. So a little a geography lesson here. Uh, if you pretend I'm the Jordan River, okay, in the promised land, this would be east of the Jordan River, and this would be west. So the, uh, the two and a half tribes uh, had already been allotted land over here. They crossed the river and the 12 tribes together helped conquest the land, and now they're ready to head back uh, after the conquest of the land. So, um, seven years previously, at the beginning of the book of uh, Joshua, the fighting uh, men of these two and a half tribes, they leave their families behind, they cross the Jordan with the rest of the tribes, and they help with the conquest of the land. And now that the conquest is finished, the two and a half tribes are returning back to their lands, and Joshua sends them off with a blessing and an exhortation. 
That's what we get from the beginning of uh, Joshua 22. Here's what Joshua said to them. He said, you have done as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed every order that I have given you. During all this time, you have not deserted the other tribes. You have been careful to obey the commands of the Lord your God right up to the present day. And now the Lord your God has given the other tribes rest as he promised them. So go back home to the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you as your possession, as your inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. But be very careful to obey all the commands and the instructions that Moses gave to you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Obey his commands. Hold firmly to him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went home. Which I think is just an awesome uh, blessing or exhortation. To, to ex ex exhort someone is, is part command and part encouragement. I remember when I dropped my son off uh, to college, my exhortation to him was, stay out of trouble. So not, not quite as elegant as um, Joshua here. But seriously, Joshua blessed them. It gave them a bunch of spoils from verse 8. And then they started to head home. However, what happens next is what almost causes a civil war. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in, in the land of Canaan, the two and a half tribes built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So before the two and a half tribes head back across the Jordan, they stopped to build an altar. And at this point, we're not told why they build the altar. We're only told that it's large and imposing, depending on your, your version. So we need to put ourselves in the place of the nine and a half tribes at this point. They're wondering, well, why did they just build an altar? We, we already have an altar at Shiloh to the Lord. What, what do they think they're doing here? And, and they're so alarmed by this that, as verse 12 tells us, they're, they're prepared to go to war over it. But even as they're preparing for war, they send over a delegation uh, for, from the nine and a half tribes. And they're, they're headed by Phineas the priest, and, and the delegation includes a member from each of the uh, nine and a half tribes. So why is this such a big deal? So what? They built an altar. Why was it such an offense as to go to war over? Well, back in Deuteronomy, the Lord gave very specific instructions about building altars that were not authorized by him. Deuteronomy 12, 13 to 14. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. And this was followed by a warning of severe consequences. You know, you surely, from verse uh, 15, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction 
all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So once again, when it comes to the holiness of God, God's not impartial. He judges the Israelites the same as the Canaanites for idol worship, for sacrifice. So the, the nine and a half tribes had every right to be alarmed by this new altar. But fortunately, uh, the, uh, the nine and a half tribes uh, closely follow the whole law. Not just that part, because the law also said, in such cases, you must examine the facts. You must examine the facts carefully. So the delegation investigated the situation first. Um, my wife and I have a, a favorite preacher named Derek Prime. He's from England. And in one of his sermons, he shared this uh, helpful uh, principle or rule that he likes to live by. And his rule is find out what is true before, I mean, so that you can do what is right. In other words, find out the facts before you act. So, for example, before you chastise your son or daughter for coming home uh, long after the curfew, you know, find out the facts. Find out what is true. I mean, they might have a very good reason. You know, if they have a great reason, uh, you, you know, give them a hug, and thank God that they're safe, and all that stuff. So, and if, if they were just being defiant, you know, well then you devote them to destruction. But, <laughs> but uh, the point is, find out the facts so that you can do what is right. So in the case of Phineas and the nine and a half tribes, they sought to examine the facts uh, carefully. And thank God they did before acting hastily. The other nine and a half tribes, they feared that this new altar was a rival altar to the one uh, approved by God at Shiloh. And they also feared that this, this new altar might become an idolatrous altar in the future and that God would punish the entire nation for it. And they had good reason. Uh, when, they, when the delegation appeals to the two and a half tribes, they, even, they bring up the sin of Achan. If we remember the sin of Achan and how the whole community suffered because of the sin of one man. They mention that in verse 20. So you have to appreciate a few things about these uh, nine and a half tribes. You know, one is their commitment to God's law. They knew what God's law said about making other altars and they remembered how the whole community had suffered uh, when even just one person sinned against God. Another is that even though they were prepared to go to war over the issue in order to protect God's law and, and to protect the rest of the community, of course, the nine and a half tribes didn't react hastily. They sent a delegation on, on a fact-finding mission. And then finally, the nine and a half tribes were determined to maintain unity among the uh, 12 tribes. And to prove it, they even offered their own land. It says, or they said, if the land of your possession is unclean, come back. Come back over here where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves land among us. If that's why you're building an altar, only, only don't rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. So you have to appreciate 
their willingness to share the land. This is land that has already been uh, divided up. It's already been apportioned. It showed a genuine concern for the welfare of their brothers and also for the unity of the nation as a whole. Well, as it turns out, as we read on in the narrative, it was you know, all much ado about nothing, you know, to quote a Shakespeare play. Much ado about nothing. The two and a half tribes respond by saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, you've got it all wrong. Okay, they didn't exactly say that, but they said, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, we would never do anything to turn away from following the Lord. If we did, may the Lord himself take vengeance they say, verses 22 and 23. And the rest of the chapter explains the reason for the altar. The two and a half tribes were concerned that over time, the other nine and a half tribes would not include them in the community because the, the land was divided by the Jordan River and they would be on one side and the other tribes would be on the other side and because they too were concerned about the unity of the nation. So they explained. They said, the truth is, we have built this altar because we fear that in the future, your descendants will say to our descendants, what right do you have to worship the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has placed the Jordan River as a barrier between our people and you people of Reuben and Gad. You have no claim to the Lord. That's what they were afraid of. So your descendants may prevent our descendants from worshiping the Lord. So we decided to build the altar, not for burnt offerings or sacrifices, but as a witness between us. It will remind our descendants and your descendants that we too have the right to worship the Lord at his sanctuary in Shiloh with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and peace offerings then your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no claim to the Lord. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord or turn away from him by building our own altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifices. Only the altar of the Lord our God that stands in front of the tabernacle may be used for that purpose. So as you read this narrative, you can almost... Uh, feel the sense of relief by everyone. Oh, that's what the altar's for. You know, thank God. That's awesome. That's great. You guys had us worried for a minute there. You, you can just almost sense that. Because right after that, Phineas then says to the two and a half tribes, he's, he, he says, today we know that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord as we thought. Instead, you have rescued all Israel from being destroyed by the hand of the Lord. And then Phinehas and his delegates, they returned to the land of Canaan to tell the Israelites what had happened. And all the Israelites were satisfied and praised God and spoke of no more war against the two and a half tribes. Verse 34, the people of the two and a half tribes uh, named the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us and them 
that the Lord is our God too. So this, thus unity was preserved, preserved among the people. And this, and this other altar would be a witness or a memorial to that unity, a witness between us and them, as they said, that the Lord is our God too. And this is such a great example of how to handle change in the community. There's a lot of change going on here. After, after seven years of war, the, the, the 12 tribes have received their inheritance and they're ready to get on with the hard work of actually living in the land, you know, raising families, building communities, establishing farms and trades, and uh, defending the land and worshiping the Lord their God. They have to establish all these things. And yet, despite all the change in the air, they were committed to God's Word. They were committed to each other and committed to carrying out their mission, which is being a people of God and drawing other nations to that God. Uh, Many scholars point to this time period as, as one of the high points of the nation of Israel. And even even if it didn't last very long, this was one of the high points of that nation. So in a very real way, the Lord's table is intended as a witness or as a memorial, a reminder that we too, as a church, as a body, are united by our devotion to Jesus Christ. And despite all the changes that this church has had over the past few years, certainly over the past few months, definitely, that we too need to be committed to God's Word. And we too need to be committed to each other and committed to carrying out our mission, which we've talked about a few times, of being the heart of Christ in the heart of the community. Uh, Speaking of the heart of Christ, uh, Charles Spurgeon once made reference to Matthew 11.29, where Jesus spoke of his own heart. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And Spurgeon said, of this passage. He says, Now it is very remarkable that the only passage in the whole New Testament in which the heart of Jesus is distinctly mentioned is the one before us. Matthew eleven twenty nine. And Spurgeon goes on to say, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He says, The words of Jesus here include, first, a readiness on the part of Christ to pardon all offenses. Come to me, Jesus says, for however much you may have offended in the past, I am meek and I will hear your requests. I am ready to forgive, to forget, and cast behind my back all your offenses. I do not say this to coax you. My very heart says it, for my heart is full of tenderness and compassion for you. And Jesus' words also include a willingness to endure yet further 
offenses. Jesus, not only do I forget the past, but I am ready to bear with you still, though you should still offend me. I will endure it all. Come to me. Although you cannot, although you cannot hope that your future character will be perfect, I will help you. I will help you to struggle into holiness and be patient with your failures. As frequently as you shall grieve me, so frequently I will forgive you. I am meek in heart, ready to forgive the past, and willing to bear with you in the present and in the future. And Spurgeon concludes, he says, Beloved brethren, what a heart Jesus has to receive sinners in this divine manner. And as we gather together this morning, you know, let us be reminded that the Lord's table is a witness or a memorial to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we are a united people whose hearts were once cold and dead but have now been made warm and alive through simple faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And as, as we partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ as, as represented by the bread and the juice, we do so for sure as, as individuals, but also together, united as one body, with Christ as our head. And if you find yourself in this morning knowing in your heart that you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, we ask that you let the bread and the juice pass you by, but not without considering your own desperate need for Christ. Scripture says that apart from Christ, our hearts are wicked, and that you have that you've been cast out of God's presence. But God provided a way through Christ to come back into His presence, giving you a new heart if you would only repent and believe. Beloved brethren, what a heart Jesus has to receive sinners in this divine manner. Amen? Amen. Amen.